Now we turn to the first chapter of Ephesians once again. Hopefully you will have heard already in the hymnody the themes of our passage. Ephesians, the first chapter. If you were providentially hindered from being here last week, we introduced Ephesians and I urge you to listen to it because it set up the entire series extremely important, and I urge you to do that. This morning we're going to focus on one verse only, and that verse is verse 3, but we will read beginning at verse 1. Let's bow in prayer before we read. Our great and gracious God, we pour contempt on all our pride as we contemplate the cross. We ask that if there are those here who do not see that need, that even as Christians are strengthened in their faith and come to understand the Holy Scriptures better, that the Holy Spirit would work within the hearts of those who are lost and undone, that they may not rely upon anything of their own, no righteousness, no intelligence, no beauty, no strength, no wealth, nothing, but would rely upon Jesus Christ alone, who is the Savior of sinners. And we ask your blessing upon our series on this grand epistle, that it may feed our souls and further our walk and move us on to our heavenly home. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Ephesians chapter 1, beginning with verse 1, this is the word of God. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God, to the saints who are in Ephesus, and are faithful in Christ Jesus. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who hath blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. Now, verse 3 is our verse this morning. Let's look at it again. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. I want to begin our second sermon on Ephesians with a few very brief quotations from some well-known Bible expositors of this great, wonderful book, so that we might see something of its grandeur. I think we should be excited about our opportunity to turn to the book of Ephesians and study it together, and some of these quotations might be somewhat surprising to you. And they will help us to see that as we embark on this study, it is a study of monumental proportions, or it should be, in our Christian lives. A.T. Robertson said this, Paul has written nothing more profound than chapters 1 to 3 of Ephesians. The ISBE, International Standard Bible Encyclopedia, speaks of Ephesians as the Switzerland of the New Testament, comparing it, of course, to the Alps. Campbell Morgan said, this letter leads us to the high places of vision and to awe-inspiring sublimities. It leads us there and then leaves us in amazed and wondering adoration in the presence of the truths revealed. F.F. Bruce says that Ephesians is the quintessence of Paulinism, and Edgar Goodspeed spoke of Ephesians as a great rhapsody of the Christian salvation. And all of these quotations indicate the greatness of Ephesians, but they also encapsulate one of the great reasons for studying this book. And what is that reason? 
It leads to a quality that is very much needed in your Christian life and in mine, and that quality is the quality of praise. Last week, I gave you several incentives for studying Ephesians, and I told you that there was one incentive that I would hold till this week. Well, this is it. It is the motive of praise. Our Christian lives need to be characterized by praise. Would you not agree that that is true? Not a flip quality, not a shallow sort of emotion, but real praise for God on the basis of truth, no matter the circumstances of life. And that quality of praise is what we see here in Ephesians 1.3. Ephesians 1 verse 3 begins a long sentence that does not conclude until the end of verse 14. It is all one very long and involved peon of praise. So let's take a moment to read the sentence again. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. Blessed be the God and Father. So let's first of all begin with the place of praise. The place of praise. Blessed be the God and Father. The term blessing, of course, you will recognize from the Psalms. Psalm 66, 20, blessed be God. Psalm 41, 13, blessed be the Lord, the God of Israel. And so on it goes. Only now God is blessed for having sent his son and for the great thing that he has done for us in Jesus Christ. And he has blessed us, which means that we already possess the blessings of which he speaks. Let me ask you as we simply begin this point, what is the place of praise in your life? What should the place of praise be in the Christian's life? Now you notice this all through Paul's life, and we certainly see it here in Ephesians. In Ephesians, you see it so clearly in the various prayers that we find in the book. Have you noticed the sentences dropped and picked up? For example, in chapter 1, verse 15, he begins with a thanksgiving prayer. Then he moves in verse 17 to an intercessory prayer that stops at verse 23. And then in chapter 3, he starts an entirely new thought, interrupts and picks it up again in verses 14 through 19. At chapter 3, verse 20, he pronounces a benediction, and you expect him to stop, but he doesn't. He keeps on moving. Paul the Apostle prayed and praised, conversationally lived his life in prayer, and from one perspective, Ephesians is a compilation of prayers. Another way that you see praise in Paul's life just looking at Ephesians is repetition. In verse 3, you find the word blessed twice. In verses 4 and 5, chose and predestinated, synonyms. In verse 6, grace and graced. In verse 8, wisdom and understanding. He duplicates words, or essentially so. And then there are long sentences that we find in Paul's writings. Here in chapter 1, verses 3 through 14, there is in the Greek New Testament one long sentence of 202 words with no intervening mark of punctuation. Now that's a long sentence. So we ask ourselves, why? Well, all of these things are evidence of an impassioned soul. Starting thoughts, interrupting, getting back to the main theme, repetitious language, long sentences as if spoken breathlessly. These are the ways in which we speak when we're excited or when we are impassioned. So let me illustrate. You go home and your wife says to you one day, the greatest thing has happened to me today, and what do you have? Start, stop, return again to the thoughts mentioned, emphasis on words, double use of words, long sentences. 
Listen to a girl who has just had a significant date or perhaps has become engaged. How does she speak? Or listen to a football fan after a great game or a parent when baby takes his first step or to a minister when he has moved by his theme. And this is what you find. So what we have here in verse 3 is an emotional, emotional response to truth. What is Paul's emotional response to truth? To electing grace, for example, in chapter 1. What is yours? Paul's response is an outburst in glorious praise. And let me remind you, this is a prison epistle. He's writing from prison filled with praise to God for Jesus Christ. So I wonder, have you the courage to pray that God will change you through Ephesians, that he will grip you, that you might actually begin to live a life of praise despite the circumstances that you face in life? Because you see, our purpose in studying the Bible and in studying Ephesians is not simply to acquire knowledge. When a groom appears at a wedding ceremony, no one says he just wants to observe the ceremony. He wants the bride. So we do not just want to gather information knowing God Knowing God is the goal. Zeal without knowledge is dangerous. Knowledge without zeal is a travesty. So as Paul begins to contemplate God's eternal purpose and the blessings that flow to us from union with Jesus Christ, he cannot help but break out into spontaneous praise. Do you ever do that? Do you find yourself so overwhelmed with truth that your heart simply breaks out into spontaneous praise. Because emotion is very important to being a human being and very important in the Christian life. But remember this, our emotions are fallen in sin. Redeemed emotions are the response to truth. And truth must inform the mind. But if truth is really grasped, it will, not always on the same level, but it will move the emotions, change our wills, and direct our affections. Nothing is so easily counterfeited by Satan than Christian emotions. And that's why they must be grounded in truth. Let me give you an illustration that I hope will sharpen our understanding of this. And it comes just from my wide reading over the years, which I've been privileged to do. I've read a great deal in many theologians and writers, and one of them, of course, is Jonathan Edwards. Now, when you go to that great colonial minister, considered by some to be the greatest theologian and philosopher America has ever produced, what you find when you read Jonathan Edwards is that he is the most cerebral of theologians. But it might surprise you also to find that Jonathan Edwards is the most most emotionally intense theologian. In other words, the more his mind was grounded in truth, the more emotionally intense was his character. Edwards gives us a better way of thinking about this. Rather than emotions, Edwards takes the biblical data in hand and he speaks of affections. And he says that the affections are of two sorts. They are those by which the soul is carried out to what is in view, cleaving to it, seeking it, or those by which it is averse from it and opposes it. In other words, there is understanding and there is inclination or disinclination. One may understand the propositions of the gospel and yet not relish the gospel. You might be able to tell somebody how to be saved and yet not know Christ yourself. 
We may be able to analyze in a lab all the properties of honey, but the person who really knows honey is the person who has tasted honey. So the affections are like china marks on the bottom of a teacup. You can hold up the teacup and you can see the china mark and you can know that it's the real thing. True affections come from this sense of things, this new sense of things that is produced in our hearts by the Spirit of God. And so Edwards rightly distinguishes between true and false affections. For example, talking about religion is no certain sign that you know God. Delight in divine things for its own sake is a true and certain sign. Much praise to God in our speech is no certain sign that you know God. But reflecting the whole image of Christ in our lives is a certain sign. Outward things, for example, involvement in the life of the church and doing a lot of busy things, outward things that may convince others that you are a Christian is no certain sign that you are a Christian. But bearing real fruit, practical holiness, is a certain sign. And of course, the most certain sign of all is perseverance. So this is the sure foundation of praise. Really tasting to see that the Lord is good. Knowing Him personally. Knowing Him really. Relishing the truth. And then Edwards says, if you really know Him, you will praise. And then you will be like a star and not a meteor that burns out. D. Martin Lloyd-Jones said this about Edwards. And I read it because I want you to apply it to Paul and then apply it to yourself. Lloyd-Jones says this about Jonathan Edwards. But above all, let all of us preachers and listeners, having read this man, let us try to capture and lay hold upon his great emphasis, his greatest emphasis of all, the glory of God. Let us not stop at any benefit that we may have had and not even the highest experiences that we have enjoyed, let us seek to know more and more of the glory of God. We need to know the majesty of God, the sovereignty of God, and to feel a sense of awe and wonder. Do we know this? Is this in our churches? Is there a sense of wonder and amazement? This is the impression Jonathan Edwards conveys and creates. But now what Lloyd-Jones says of Edwards can first of all be said about Paul and what he's doing right here in chapter 1 of the book of Ephesians. What we find here is a Holy Spirit-induced relish of the truth. A Holy Spirit-produced delight in the triune God. So do you see this? Is this true of you? In other words, is God the true God your whole life? That is why Paul praises. That is the place of praise in the Christian life. Even when things hurt, even when you're weeping, you're praising God and you are saying, though he slay me, yet will I praise him. Our hearts should not be cold when we regard truth. How can we contemplate the fact that the infinite, eternal, unchangeable God of the Bible has sent His Son into the world to save us from our sins, rose from the dead? We are now in union with Him. How can we be cold-hearted in response to that? So what is the place of praise in your life? We must go on. We're looking at verse 3. 
And we see that all blessing in the heavenlies are in Christ. All blessing in the heavenlies are in Christ. Look at the verse again. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, that's praise, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. All spiritual blessing. Now the word all in Ephesians is another very important word. It's the word pas. It's used 52 times in the book of Ephesians. Notice just here in chapter 1, let your eye go down. In verse 3 he uses the word all or every. In verse 8, in verse 10, in verse 11, in verse 15, twice in verse 21, twice in verse 22, twice in verse 23. And so we could work on through the book. The blessings enumerated in chapter 1, election, adoption, redemption, the sealing of the Spirit, all come from our union with Christ. So it's another way of saying that salvation is all of grace. It's another way of saying that Christ is sufficient, that He is the source of all of the spiritual blessings that we have. That there is not one spiritual blessing that emanates from any other person or any other source. That the source is Christ and our blessings are spiritual because Christ has poured out His Spirit as the ascended Lord. So, all blessings we have, notice the verse, in the heavenlies or in the heavenly places. What does Paul mean? Well, someone is translated in the celestial regions. The point is to remind us right from the start that Christ is exalted, that He's in the heavenlies. Ephesians is the ascension epistle. The ascension is the great presupposition of the book. That's why the title of today's sermon, Stratospheric Theology. Your Savior is in the heavenlies, and you are there in union with Him. Now let's connect this little prepositional phrase, in Christ. You have all spiritual blessings in the heavenly places, and you have them in Christ. We are in union with Him. And where is He? He is sitting on the right hand of the Father, and we are in union with Him there. So every blessing comes from our union with the exalted Christ. He is victorious, He is exalted, and we are victorious and exalted in Him. Think of the book of Hebrews and how it puts it. Just for example, in chapter 8, it's all through Hebrews. Now the point in what we are saying is this. We have such a high priest, one who is seated at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in heaven. So Christ is now the victor sitting on the right hand of the Father. And Paul says here in verse 3, you are there also in union with Him. Christ is there. God sees me in Him. I receive all blessings in Him. Draw upon them moment by moment. No wonder Paul praises. He is assured of the cosmic reign of Christ The Father sees me in union with the exalted reigning Lord, and I find my identity right there and nowhere else in Him. So are all spiritual blessings in Christ? Then don't look elsewhere for them. Are they all in Christ? Don't look to someone or somewhere else. 
or to something else. For example, why go to a secular council with a moral struggle? I think this is a bane in the church right now, and we find the answer to it right here. A Christian struggles with temptation and sin. He goes to some secular counselor who doesn't know who God is. He doesn't know who man is. He doesn't know what our need is. He doesn't know what the source of salvation is. He knows nothing of the spiritual blessings that we have all in Christ. Has no idea what union with Christ means. So I ask you, do you really believe the text or not? Is Christ sufficient or not? Is Christ exalted to heaven? Does God see you in him? Do you draw upon him moment by moment? Charles Spurgeon somewhere said, it's like writing out a check, but my withdrawals never diminish the funds. Because you see, all spiritual blessings are anchored in union with the the Savior Jesus. So all of these blessings are in Christ. In Christ. Now notice something. Here in verse 1, we read, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by the will of God to the saints who are in Ephesus and are faithful in Christ Jesus. Now here in verse 3, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. Already twice we have seen it mentioned within the space of three verses that we are in Christ, which is Paul's way of saying in union with Christ. So that moves us to this third point. If all of our blessings are in Christ, we need to understand what union with Christ is, don't we? The third thing then is union with Christ, what does it mean? It's rich, it's multifaceted, but fundamental to Paul's pastoral theology, and let me emphasize fundamental to your Christian living. Paul's teaching on union with Christ is comprehensive of all Christian living. And we'll get a start on it now, and we'll just have to unpack it more next week. Let me remind you, first of all, though, of the importance of this phrase, in Christ, in the entire book of Ephesians. In Christ, or its equivalent, is found 35 times in this epistle. Now, when I see that, I say that means something. And again, let your eye go down. Verse 3, all spiritual blessings in the heavenlies in Christ. Verse 4, election in Christ. Verse 6, acceptance in the beloved, which means Christ. Verse 7, in whom, which means in Christ, we have redemption and forgiveness. Verse 9, the mystery of his will set forth in Christ. Verse 10, God gathers all things in Christ. Verse 11, in whom, which means in Christ, we have obtained an inheritance. Verse 11, we are to the praise of his glory who first trusted in Christ. Verse 13, in whom you also trusted, in whom you were sealed, which is speaking of union with Christ. So let's do this today. Let's begin by allowing me to give you categories by which you will come to understand better union with Christ, because it's better described than defined. First of all, when we read the New Testament, and especially Paul the Apostle, the union that we have with him is a comprehensive union. 
In other words, it's not simply a stage in our salvation, but it is comprehensive of all of salvation. It's the hub from which all of the spokes in the Christian life emanate. We are chosen in Christ. We died in union with Christ's death. We were buried in his burial. We were raised in his resurrection. And we will be in him when we die, body and soul, and in union with Christ when he returns, and in union with Christ forever. Nothing will separate us from the love of God in Christ. That's comprehensive, wouldn't you say? Second category is that it is a representative union. All of human life is spent for the whole human race either in union with Adam or in union with Christ. You are either in Adam or in Christ, one or the other. Adam being the representative of the human race, Christ the last Adam, the representative of his people. Thirdly, it is a spiritual union by which I simply mean it is activated and sustained by the Holy Spirit. Fourthly, it is a faith union. We actually become partakers of Christ and all his benefits by faith. Fifthly, it is a life-giving union. We just sang that in the hymn, just as the branches receive life-giving sap from the roots and trunk of the tree, So we are given life by union with Christ. I am the vine, you are the branches. And we are raised in Christ to walk in newness of life because it is a life-giving union. Those who know Christ are given life. Sixthly, it is a union of communion. By union with Christ, we fellowship with the triune God. Seventhly, it is a fraternal union. That is, we are bound one to another because of our union with Christ. Eighthly, it is a mysterious union. Paul compares it to marriage in Ephesians chapter 5. And if we cannot fully define the mysterious union between a husband and a wife, we cannot define ultimately the mystery of our union with Christ. But then... The ninth category of union with Christ is that our union with Christ is an eternal union. An eternal union, since it is grounded in God's eternal decree and in the actual accomplishment of the redemption of those who are in union with Christ, our union is a union for eternity and nothing can sever that union. Our union with Christ Your union with Christ, believer, is indissoluble. Man, there's so much here. So much to preach in so little time. But this is absolutely central to Paul. The controlling motif of his thought the most important truth that you will ever attempt to grasp, a life-transforming reality that will give to your life, when increasingly understood, one master passion. And we certainly cannot understand Ephesians without it. And so, we will turn to this theme in these categories 
next week and be ready to open your Bible to a lot of passages. Now we have Ephesians 1.3. Blessed be. He breaks out into spontaneous praise. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. So do you understand this verse a little better? Do you see how rich is this one verse in Paul's writing? Do you begin to grasp that your identity is in Christ? Well, I had a pile of applications to give you. Let me give you two. We need to start thinking about this union with Christ. Your identity is in Christ, believer. What dignity is yours? Your dignity is not in your performance. It is not in your work. It is not in your appearance. It is not in your spouse. It is not in your friends. Ladies, your identity is not in airbrush photography or the world's concept of beauty. Men, your worth is not in your work. Children, your value is not in what your peers think of you. And our value certainly is not in any supposed righteousness of our own. Your identity is in Christ. It's not in your wealth, not in your status, not in your station in life. Your identity is in Christ. In Him, you are constituted a saint. All the spiritual blessings that we have are in Christ. And so be satisfied with Him. Look to no one else for union, communion, and fulfillment. Draw near in communion to the one with whom you have communion. Do not find ultimate fulfillment in any other but in Christ. Because if you understand union with Christ then you and I will begin to see that we are infinitely rich. No matter what our status in the world, that you sit with Christ in heavenly places, and to those places you will literally go. Because your citizenship is not ultimately here, but ultimately your citizenship is in heaven. So let these realities determine how you live. And then... Let me encourage you to enter into these blessings by faith, with fullness, with all of your mind, all of your heart, all of your affections and will. Enter into these blessings. An old preacher gave this illustration. Let me give it to you in the short version this week, maybe next week in the longer. There's a man that was eking out a living out west, and the authorities had been searching for him to inform him that he had a great estate that had been left to him. Over in England, actually. When he found out, he didn't say, well, that's nice, I have something to fall back on. He went to town and he bought a suit on the credit of his new estate. And when he was asked, what are your plans? He said, I'm going to take possession of my property. Now that's the Christian life. Isn't it? Let us, by faith, live that way. We have all spiritual blessings in Christ. Let us live as those who are going to take possession of our property. And that's why Paul praises, and if you and I live that way, we will live a life of real praise. Not flip, real praise also. Now, there may be someone here, union with Christ, union with Christ is the believer's great, great teaching. 
But I said to you earlier, you are either in Adam or you are in Christ. Which is true of you? Is there someone here and you cannot say, I am in union with Christ. I have union and communion with Christ. I am with Him in the heavenly places. I don't even understand what that means. It doesn't mean anything to me. That's because you're in Adam. The word means nothing to you when you're in Adam. You don't understand it when you're in Adam. It's only through the Holy Spirit that you can see the significance of the word that is preached here this morning. If you are in Adam, you are lost. My friend, you are undone. And all of us are born into this world in Adam. There must be a transition from wrath to grace. There must be a removal from the kingdom of darkness to the kingdom of light. There must be a removal from the kingdom of Satan to the kingdom over which Jesus Christ rules and reigns in the lives of his people. You need a savior. You need a redeemer. You need to be removed from Adam to Christ. You need to be in union with Christ. And how is that union affected? By faith. Not by works, not by efforts, by nothing you produce, by simple faith in Christ. Cast aside your works, cast aside your efforts, and put your faith in Christ alone. And God's people said, Amen. Amen.